Good afternoon. I'm delighted to be with you here. It's a great honor to be asked to speak at this occasion. And I must say that I have been very, uh, very pleased, I maybe pleased isn't the right word, but grateful for the way that everyone has taken care of me, making all the arrangements, all the details taken care of, especially I think Martha Hanscom and Kathleen Kunstetter, uh, 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 Paul Fish, uh, Flesher, the co-library, all the way around, and of course Christine Rebeck. So it's been a great experience and all the way around, I'm glad to be here. You know, no matter what your background, if you speak English, you've been influenced by the King James Bible. For example, uh, have you used any of these expressions? My brother's keeper, a good old age, to spy out the land, the apple of his eye, a, mass, a, a, a man after his own heart, eat sour grapes, new wine in old bottles, all things to all men, physician heal thyself, filthy lucre, the patience of Job. These are all expressions from the King James Bible. Uh, one English scholar, David Crystal, has actually written a book where he's gone through and examined 256 different idioms like that that come from the King James that we use on a regular basis in the King James, uh, in English today. Or have you ever listened to the Messiah, or perhaps sung the, uh, parts of the Messiah? The lyrics are by Charles Jennings, uh, some from the Great Bible, but uh, if you get into I Know That My Redeemer Liveth from Job 19.25, that is straight King James Bible. Comfort ye my people from Isaiah chapter 40. So uh, wherever you are, Christian, non-Christian, non-native speaker, if you're a non-native speaker or native speaker, if you use English, you have been influenced to some degree by the King James Bible. So let me talk a little bit about the English language. Modern English speakers are aware of the fact that there are many dialects, accents, and variations in the language, yet find these mutually intelligible for the most part, and recognize them as forms of English. It's even to talk, uh, possible to talk about standard English, a form which may be taught in schools uh, throughout the English-speaking world. But that has not always been the case. Um, the, for in the 13th and 14th centuries, for example, there were very great differences in the vocabulary and speech around the British Isles. Between roughly 1400 and 1800, the language evolved and changed in a number of remarkable ways. Most textbooks on the history of English agree that the two most important influences on these changes were the works of William Shakespeare, who died in, 15, in 1616, and the King James Bible of 1611. And let me explain more about that later as we go along. In the 16th century, in England, there were three languages spoken commonly. The church and academia spoke Latin. Uh, many in the aristocracy still used French, and other people used a variety of different Englishes. But as the use of Latin was fading throughout the Western Europe in the late 16th century, the need arose for some sort of standardization of language to use in commerce, government, and diplomacy. Uh, the French and the Italians established academies with the express aim of standardizing their languages. And in France, it was Cardinal Richelieu who founded the Académie Française. He declared that among the Academy's goals was ensuring that French was pure, eloquent, and capable of treating both arts and sciences. In England, however, the language was shaped not by the Academy of Elites, but by a variety of influences. One was the growing availability of printed material, uh, dictionaries and books were increasingly readily available. Uh, it was not so much that printers were striving for standardization, 
since there's pretty good evidence that they, this was not really their concern. For example, one printer I saw had spelled the word had three different ways in the same publication depending on how much extra space he needed to fill out a line. Uh, but rather, the more that published material was read, the more certain forms of the language came to be seen as standard. But most significantly, at this time when English was ready and open to some influence to help standardize the language, there appeared two great enduring bodies of work, both of which were meant to be heard. One was the literary work of William Shakespeare, whose plays and poems were oral arts. They were meant to be performed and heard. The other was the King James Bible, whose translators envisioned oral readings of their translation within the context of public worship. Both addressed audiences that were appreciators of their own language, and, but the audiences were largely illiterate. Shakespeare's influence was with new vocabulary. Um, you know, he introduced new words and idioms. To be or not to be uh, did not aid the standardization of the language, but the new words did. Words that he concocted that we still use include accommodation, assassination, barefaced, countless, laughable, premeditated, submerged, courtship, obscene. Those are all creations of William Shakespeare. Words that didn't survive include abruption, exuffocate, vestidity. They didn't make it. Okay. <laughs> now, the translators of the King James Bible spoke and used Latin much more than English. Miles Smith, who wrote the preface to the King James Bible, said they had learned, Latin, uh, had learned Latin from the cradle. One of them, a man named John Overall, complained, this is one of the translators, John Overall complained that he had spoken Latin so long it was troublesome to him to speak English in a continued oration. Uh, many of the translators left lists of books in their libraries, and what you find are continental religious works and commentaries and Latin and Greek classics. Um, they, uh, many of them in Latin, but what you don't find uh, are novels, poetry, or plays. And nor did they go to plays. John Reynolds, another of the translators, wrote a book with a title only in part, The Overthrow of Stage Plays, wherein is manifestly proved that it is not only unlawful to be an actor, but a beholder of these vanities. That was in 1599 that that was published. There is every likelihood that these learned men, the translators of the King James Bible, never saw a play by Shakespeare who was writing plays before and throughout the time that they were working on the King James Version. In short, the mental word world of the translators was dominated by theology, scholarship, and classics. They probably would have been astonished to discover that they lived in the great golden age of English literature. So how was the King James Version one of the two great influences on the standardization of English? And there are at least three reasons. First, the translators were not trying to create a work of literature. They just wanted a text that would be easily understood by ordinary people when it was read aloud. This is one way that it differs significantly from a previous translation by William Tyndale, and I'll come back to Tyndale in a few minutes. Even though the King James Version borrowed extensively from Tyndale, about 75 to 80 percent of King James was from Tyndale. But let me show you a little bit of the difference between Tyndale and King James. I'm going to read a familiar passage, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 11 and 13, in Tyndale. Just listen to it. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I imagined as a child. 
But as soon as I was a man, I put away childishness. Now we see in a glass, even in the dark speaking. But then shall we see face to face. Now I know imperfectly, but then shall I know even as I am known. Now abide faith, hope, and love, even these three, but the chief of these is love. Now let me read that same passage in King James. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass, darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. What is involved here is not just that we are more familiar with the King James, but the rhythm and the flow are important. It sounds better. Give you another example with a really trivial change. Matthew chapter 7, verse 27 in Tyndale says, And abundance of rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The King James translators thought, said, Okay, we can change it just a little bit. And so they said, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. Just by a little change with a couple words at the beginning, they gave it a cadence. They gave it a flow. It was more understandable when it was read aloud. You see that? So the King James Bible was not meant to be read silently for personal meditation. It was a preacher's Bible, a Bible meant to be read aloud to congregations. And more than that, the interpretation of the scripture, the understanding of the scripture was to be gained from the scripture itself being read, not from the preacher. We've switched that now. We read really flat in church, sometimes really badly in church, and we expect the preacher to interpret it. That was not the case at the time when the King James translators were working. The second feature with the King James Bible is it looked backwards. It used older word orders that had already fallen out of use. Example, follow thou me, speak ye unto, things eternal. Uh, And then all those eth endings, you know, like uh, for third person, like he giveth, had already fallen out of use by 1600 to be replaced by he gives. The S was there. But they used the F form, the old form that had fallen out of use. Thou, thine, thee, versus you and yours. Uh, Earlier, thou was the subject form, thee the object, and thy and thine were the possessives. The modern English would say you, you, and yours. Uh, In early Middle English, thou was the singular form of ye. However, French, remember I told you the middle aristocracy used French, and they influenced language. French was widely used in England during the Middle Ages, influencing English as a result. So the English word you came to have the same associations as the French word vous. In other words, it's a plural, uh, plural form, but it began to be used for singular. Um, and it, so you, you, you'd use vous when you were not addressing a person who was not inferior or not an intimate friend or family member. Normally in French, the singular forms are used within the family or to address children and people of inferior social class. So English began to use thou, thee, and thy in a similar fashion. As in French, the plural forms, you, ye, your, were adopted as a mark of respect when addressing a social superior. By the 16th century, the use of the singular form to address a single individual had virtually disappeared, except in the case of family and inferiors. That is, addressing someone as thou could be a claim to being superior to that person, 
or it could be a recognition of a degree of intimacy. In the King James Bible, God is addressed in prayer as thou, as a mark of intimacy. This is the term someone would use when speaking to a family member, even though thee and thou are pretty much on the way out. The translators used it in prayers. Um, you have this several times in 1 Kings and, and John, several places when you see the prayers, you use that. I, I find it interesting how many churches and Christian traditions people continue to address God in prayer with thee, thy, thine, and thou. And I have actually had the experience of questioning people about that and saying, why are you using these forms? And they say, well, we're using it to respect God. And it's the exact opposite of the way that King James used it, when it was a mark of intimacy, not of respect. The result of all this, using these older forms, was that the King James Bible sounded familiar, kind of like an old pair of jeans. Uh, and that to the effort to make it understandable when it was read aloud, and add that to that, 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 so they, they tried to make it understandable when it was read aloud, old forms, and you can see some of the reason the translation has endured. Uh, of course, the third reason is that it was the only translation allowed to be read in service. And then it was everyone the one everyone became familiar with. But note that previous authorized translations that were used in service did not endure or influence our language, but the King James Bible did. Consequently, people began simply thinking of the Bible as having been written in English. Uh, when I was in college, we did George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, and I played Henry Higgins. We did Pygmalion instead of My Fair Lady because I couldn't sing. <laughs> but, but the character Henry Higgins tells Eliza Doolittle to remember, this is a quote, that you are a human being with a soul and the divine gift of articulate speech that your native language is the language of Shakespeare and Milton and the Bible, and don't sit there crooning like a bilious pigeon. For Shaw and for other English speakers, the King James Bible was the Bible. The idea of inspiration, which was traditionally applied to the biblical text in their original languages, now came to be applied to the King James Bible itself. Very interesting development. In the 1960s, when I was in college, I earned money selling Bibles door to door. And a frequent question people would ask me, this is true, what do you think of these newfangled Bibles? I used to get out of that by saying, well, I read the New Testament in Greek, <laughs> which I did, <laughs> but I was avoiding the question. <laughs> but I heard, I had one man say to me one time, if the King James Bible was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> or the Bi one man said, I want the Bible in the language God wrote it. It became, the King James Bible became the Bible. Let me talk a little bit about the politics of it all. Now, as I said, the church used the Bible in Latin. The Vulgate translation prepared by uh, St. Jerome primarily in the fourth century. Since the general population could not read Latin, the clergy controlled the interpretation of the Bible. Uh, in the 14th century, there was a group of people called the Lollards, which either means idler or mumbler, we don't know that really felt they, were, they, they opposed the teachings of the church because they felt that the church was misinterpreting the Bible. Their leader was a man named John Wycliffe. And they decided that the people needed to have the Bible in English so they could read it for themselves to uh, get away from the false interpretation of the church. The, uh, so they, they did, if you go to London today, to the, uh, the li British Library, you can see a copy of the first scriptures in the English language that were prepared by Tyndale and the Lollards together. It was based on the Vulgate. They used the Vulgate as the text. Uh, but of course, 
Uh, and the, by the way, the first Bible came out in 1388, uh, four years after the death of, of Wycliffe, but he was there when the New Testament was done. But the church was so incensed by this that even 40 years after uh, Wycliffe's death, they dug up his bones, crushed them up, scattered them in a river, kind of, you know, there. Uh, let that be a lesson to you. Um, the next person to really take on trying to translate the Bible into English was William Tyndale, who lived from 1494 to 1536. Tyndale was the first to base his translation on the original languages of the Greek and Hebrew, not on the Latin translation of the Vulgate. Um, he, um, he, the other really important thing about him was he was the first to take advantage of the printing press. Now, he had to flee to Europe. He was being chased all over the place when he was in England. The book was the Bible. The translations were, were published in Europe in several different places. Um, smuggled copies then were taken into England and Scotland. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Cardinal Wolsey, condemned uh, Wycliffe, uh, Tyndale as a heretic in 1529. And he was finally arrested in Antwerp. He was kept in prison at Vilvorde, just outside of Brussels, tried as a heretic, strangled, and then burned at the stake in 1536. Again, just to make sure, I guess. Uh, Wolsey had, uh, was so much in favor with the king that he was allowed to build Hampton Court Palace. But he fell from grace when he wouldn't help Henry to get a divorce. And he was stripped of all of his policy, of his property and position, and that's important. We'll come back to that. In 1534, actually, Parliament officially broke away from Rome. And Henry VIII realized that there needed then to what the reformer, what Wycliffe and Tyndale had both done was the right thing. If he really wanted to make a break with the Roman Catholic Church, they had to have the Bible in English and in every church. And so he authorized uh, Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, to have a translation prepared to be read in all churches. Um, Cranmer then, by the way, is if any of you have come from the Anglican tradition, he was the first one to prepare the first two editions of the Book of Common Prayer. Cranmer turned the job of translation over to a man named Thomas Cromwell, who, who supervised a guy named Miles Coverdale. Coverdale had been a collaborator with Tyndale, and in fact had finished putting the book together, had done some of the translation, but got the, the material together after Tyndale's death. They didn't say it was Tyndale's translation because that would have been too dangerous, but Coverdale was the person who was primarily responsible. And so therefore, um, when, when uh, Coverdale prepared this Bible that Henry had authorized. They used a great deal of extensively the material from Tyndale's translation. It was uh, published in 1539. Now, it started off being published in France because they did not have the, prop uh, the proper printing equipment, the presses or the paper and so on, in England. Cardinal Richelieu found out about it, wasn't about to let something so heretical be done on French soil, and so he shut it down. So the plates had to be smuggled into England. And that was published in 1539, it's the first authorized translation. It was called the Great Bible because of the size of the pages. It's also called the Chain Bible because it was chained at every church. But that is the first authorized translation in English. There is a certain irony here. Tyndale's translation, which got him declared a heretic by Henry's advisor Wolsey, now had an incarnation as the Bible that Henry authorized. History is wonderful. Now, after Henry, under Bloody Mary, Mary uh, who was a Catholic, Cranmer was martyred, uh, burned in the middle of the street in Oxford, at the same spot that two bishops, Latimer and Ridley, had been martyred six months earlier. When I lived in England, I used to love to go to Blackwell's uh, bookstore 
uh, in Oxford and just down the street when there was a little plaque out in the middle of the uh, street where, uh, where Cranmer was martyred. Um, Queen Mary began killing a lot of the British, uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the church scholars and, and clergy, and, and, and so many of them fled to Geneva, uh, took shelter there with Calvin, John Calvin. Uh, and they produced a translation in English based on the Greek and Hebrew. The translation of the New Testament was published in 1560, the, uh, the whole Bible in 1576. It had extensive and, uh, interpreta interpretive notes and the translation itself was very interpretive, very doctrinal. Uh, because they had all become Calvinists, they put Calvinism into their translation. But this was the, this called the Geneva Bible, and this was the Bible of Shakespeare and Bunyan, Milton and Dunn. <clears throat> now under, Mary was only in five years. Under Elizabeth, the Catholics were the ones who had to flee. Elizabeth killed just as many Catholics as Mary had killed Protestants, but it took her 43 years instead of five. But, <laughs> They, they, didn't, they, they played rough. So the Catholics that, that fled England moved, fled to Douai and Reims, or Reims as we say, in France. And they did a translation in English based on the Latin Vulgate. The New Testament was published in 1582, Old Testament stages over the next 30 years. The King James translators had access and definitely used it, but they don't list it in the preface of the King James Bible as one that they used. And by the way, when I was selling Bibles back in the middle 60s, I was still selling the Douay-Rheims Bible to, my, to Catholic customers. Uh, that endured a long time. Now, these English reformers returned from Geneva with the Geneva Bible, essentially a Calvinist translation and commentary. The Great Bible was deemed deficient in many ways by the clerics, and so the clerics, to have something to combat the Geneva Bible, a group of bishops got together and hastily prepared a translation, not very good, but it was called the Bishop's Bible, and it was the only one authorized in church, the Bishop's Bible. These English reformers who had been exiled in Geneva felt that English Reformation hadn't gone far enough, that it was too Catholic. They felt the Anglican Church retained too many of their rituals and ceremonies, as well as the customs, such as priests wearing surplice, the prominence given to the emblem of the cross, and they were called Puritans. They all, all these Puritans used the Geneva Bible and when a bunch of them in disgust sailed to America in 1620 on the Mayflower, they took three copies of the Geneva Bible with them. Elizabeth kept the Puritans and the established church people from killing each other pretty much, but there was tremendous tension. And she died in 1603 after reigning for 43 years. James VI of Scotland then was called down to be James I of England. The Puritans felt they, they now had a shot because James had been raised by Presbyterians and would considered himself a theologian, biblical scholar to a degree. And they were sure then that he would be sympathetic to their cause. They misjudged him really badly. Uh, they met him on the way down to London as he was coming down to be crowned and presented him with something called the Millenary Petition. It was called that because it was claimed that a thousand priests had signed it. Evidence points out to the fact it was probably produced in London by a couple of people, and, but anyway, you know how these things go. It was called. And they, what they did in the millinery petition was ask him to go ahead and complete, uh, finish the purification of the, of the, and to complete the reformation of the church. Um, but uh, so on October 24th in 1603, James called for a conference the following year at Hampton Court Palace, the one that they had taken from Woolsey. They were going to have the, the, con the meeting earlier, but because of the great plague that was delayed and they had to wait until the, the, the things had quieted down a bit. 
They met in January of 1604. Now, what, the first day, the Puritans were not allowed to attend. James met with a number of clerics from the established church. They went through the millinery petition. Nope, not that, not that. Eh, maybe that. No, not that. This kind of thing. The second day, they allowed the Puritans come in and explain to them what was going on. And John Reynolds, one of the Puritans, said, well, you know, we really, the, the Bishop's Bible's not very good. I'm paraphrasing here, by the way. So can we have a new translation that be the official authorized translation? They were hoping that, that James would authorize the, the Geneva Bible. And this is where they had really misjudged James. Um, the, uh, they wanted it to replace it, but James was dead set against the Geneva Bible. I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Exodus chapter 1, verse 19. There's this wonderful story of where the, the Hebrew people in, in Egypt were growing too fast. There were beginning to be too many of them. And Pharaoh called in the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, and said, look, when a baby boy is born, kill it. And they said, okay. But of course they didn't. And so he summoned them back, and if you don't believe me, check Exodus 1, and said, hey, why didn't you do what I said? And they said, well, you know, our Hebrew women are not like your Egyptian women. They're more lively. When their babies drop, they drop. We get there too late. And it's too late to do anything about it. And the Geneva footnote then has a footnote that says, of course, that, that basically, um, that yes, this was a lie, but on the other hand, they were doing a good thing. And James was furious with that because to lie to a monarch was simply not acceptable to someone who believed in the divine right of kings. James was insistent about the translation of ecclesiastical words, baptism and church should be used instead of washing and congregation, as one found in the Geneva Bible. James and Archbishop of Canterbury Bancroft at that time insisted that the translation of ecclesia, as the Greek word ecclesia as congregation, and the Greek word presbyteros as elder, should be church and priest. Now these terms were crucial to the English Reformation. An elder would not have any ancient priestly significance that is, would not necessarily be the means of passing on God's grace to humankind. They, believing in the priesthood of all believers, as most of the reformers, including the Puritans, did, meant for them that there was no need for bishops and archbishops. And similarly, a congregation had no need for elaborate and expensive structure of the established church. And washing did not have the same sacramental importance as baptism. And so there were theological reasons why James rejected the, the Geneva Bible. So he said, we'll have a new translation. We'll start a new translation. And they organized it. He wanted it done quickly, and he wanted it done with his theological interpretation. He set up a very good business model. All previous translations had been done by either individuals, or not, but not by committees, or maybe two or three people working together on different parts, but there was no structure. James set up a committee structure that was really incredible. First of all, uh, they had six companies. Nine people were going to be in each company. It's interesting they used the word company. I told you it's a business model. Not committee, but company. There were three for the Old Testament. They divided the Old Testament into three. Two for the New Testament and one for the Apocrypha. Um, this was all, not only was this the first translation to be a, have committee structure, it was the first translation to have a manual, a set of 15 rules to follow that James and the Archbishop of Canterbury laid out of what they could do about vocabulary, how they were to proceed with the work, how it was to be organized, 
And the purpose was that they would have theological correctness, as James defined it, and they would have great speed. And by the way, it did include, as I said, the sixth, the sixth company did do the Apocrypha. Um, many American Protestants are surprised to find that the Apocrypha was part of the King James Bible because most, many American Protestants don't use it these days. They reject it as being not scriptural, perhaps. Uh, some later publishers dropped these books just to save money, you know, because they, they felt they weren't used as much. Some disagreed with them theologically, but it was not until 1826 that publishers in England and America consistently dropped the Apocrypha. Uh, the work began then in the fall of 1604. And here's an interesting little footnote that I just have to throw in. Although under Elizabeth the real struggles in England had shifted from Anglican versus Roman Catholic to established Anglican versus Puritan, there were still many Catholic supporters. And on November 5th in 1605, several of them led by Guy Fawkes planned to blow up the opening of Parliament over which James presided. The idea was to kill James so they could put his nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth, who was a Catholic. Parents didn't seem to bring their kids up with their own religion. Anyway, <laughs> uh, to put Elizabeth on a throne. And had the plot succeeded, there never would have been a King James Bible. It's one of those great what-ifs of history. The translation, as it laid out in these 15 principles, was to be based on the Bishop's Bible. James said technically it was to be a revision of the Bishop's Bible. In fact, only 8% of the King James Bible comes from the, the, uh, the, the Bishop's Bible. Much more from Tyndale, 75%, maybe a little bit more. But because of that, the fact that it was supposed to be a revision of bishops, it was not listed as a new translation at Stationers Hall, which is where they recorded new translations, um, even though it was, in fact, a new translation. And even though they used a serious amount of Tyndale, they used much more memorable languages, as I demonstrated earlier. They used the Greek and the Hebrew as their base, and they looked at many other English translations. Um, and it came out in 1611. I'm going to come back to that. Printing history. Readers who, now this, this is something I want you to try. Readers who compare King James Bibles available in America from different publishers may be surprised to find that they're not all the same. Uh, the Bible is being circulated in this country in at least five different categories of editions, all with the same general content, but none completely identical with the others in a number of technical details. In addition, they, they differ on the pronunciation system, spelling of proper names, uh, verse style versus paragraphing, for, uh, paragraph formatting, page and chapter headings, reference systems, the printings of the Jesus words in red in some editions now, and statements at the end of some of the epistles. There's quite a bit of difference. If you buy my book, there's more explanation of that. He says again. <laughs> um, why all these differences? How did they originate? Is there one original King James Bible? And the answer begins with a, a understanding the printing technology of 1611. After the various companies had finished their drafts, uh, and there had been revised and revisited by the other committees as, uh, as, the, as the instructions required, Miles Smith and Thomas Bilson gave the text some final revisions and turned the manuscript over to Robert Barker, the king's printer, for publishing. Now, it's not exactly clear what they gave uh, Barker. It may have been a manuscript, but it could also have been a marked-up copy of the Bishop's Bible. There's very little evidence to support either idea. And most theories are sufficiently vague as to be inconclusive. What was said to be a manuscript copy of the Bible was sold twice during the 1600s, once to Cambridge University Press and once to a firm of London printers, but it's now disappeared, and it's, the speculation is that it was burned up in the Great Fire of 1666. There's no conclusive evidence, however. 
Barker issued the Bible in 1611 in two separate editions, leaving bibliographers guessing which was the first. To aid to the confusion, some sheets of one edition were bound with sheets of the other in some copies. Uh, the most striking difference is, uh, is in Ruth 3.15, where one edition has, he went into the city, and the other has, she went into the city. So this has given rise to the names of the Great He Bible and the Great She Bible. Uh, I, I, I remember when I was in the library at the American Bible Society in New York one time going through it, they had six copies of 1611 King James, and two, uh, there were two he's and three she's, or four she's, or whatever. We don't know which is first. Many contemporary scholars think that the he Bible was first, and that she was a correction. And most current editions of King James, therefore, have she. But the revised and the American revised versions have he. And also the she Bible had good pearls in Matthew 13.45, but uh, the other edition has, uh, had goodly. And the former has the holy child, and the other one has thy holy, not even related. Uh, one, and goes on, there are about 658 significant differences between those two editions. Uh, even the title pages are different in the two editions. There is no such thing as an original first edition of the King James Bible. Uh, the explanation for how these differences came about can be found in the printing methods of that day. Printers in 1611 had limited supply of type. The custom was to set four pages, print as many copies as were needed for, uh, for an edition, then break down the type for further use and, print and do something else. It was impossible to save what was set. And plates were not stored to be, uh, like we do nowadays. As a result, despite every precaution being taken, because of human fallibility, every edition would have some printing errors, and these would be different errors from other editions. And furthermore, when they would say, run off a second edition where they had corrected some of the first mistakes, but they had made new ones, they would put them up on the shelf, you know, this is Genesis 1 through 4 kind of thing. And when they were putting a book together, they'd pull it off, so you might be pulling off pages from one printing, for one play, uh, play part of it, and pages from another printing, putting them together. It's the way they did printing. And as a result, there's, you have this lack of consistency. Misprints abounded. Uh, the, most, the most consequential was an edition of 1631, where by accident the compositors dropped the word not from Exodus 20.14, so that it reads, thou shalt commit adultery. Um, this, this edition became known as the Wicked Bible. <laughs> the, the blunder was spread in a number of copies. Uh, the king at the time, Charles I, and the Archbishop of Canterbury at that time, George Abbott, were outraged that the Bible contained such a flagrant mistake. Uh, Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, the publishers, were summoned to the Star Chamber, which is an English court of law at the Palace of Westminster, where they were fined 300 pounds and had their printer's licenses taken away. Barker died a pauper, the printer of the King James. Um, the majority of the Wicked Bible copies were canceled and burned, with only 11 copies surviving today. But as a result of these issues, readers can rightfully ask, what was the original King's version, King James Version? Or was there such a thing as an original King James Bible? And the answer is quite simply, there is no such thing as a single, uniform, consistent, and flawless form of the original King James Bible. Uh, as we saw, even in 1611, you had the he and the she variation. Now, the variations among the different editions continued to multiply. And the lack of records available for inspection and the nature of publishing in the early 17th century made it impossible to fully determine for certain that the translator's prefaces were ever fulfilled. Their uh, is, we don't know. Further, 
Although the King James Bible is referred to in England as the authorized version, uh, there is no evidence that it ever received any final written authorization from the bishops or the Privy Council or the king. The Oxford English Dictionary says it started to be called the authorized edition in 1824, but there is evidence actually that Bishop Ambrose Usher uh, used that term as early as 1620. Uh, Usher was the one who put in those strange dates that the world was created in 4004 BC at Genesis 1-1, for example. He also used, he's the first to have actually used the word uh, authorized. Of course, the king had ordered the translation be undertaken, but he does not seem to have given any a, fi a final official approval of the translation, nor to its publication. The title page reads, The Holy Bible containing the Old and the New, the Old Testament and the New, newly translated out of the original tongues, and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment, appointed to be read in churches, and printed at, at, uh, at London by Robert Barker, printer to the King's Most Excellent Majesty, Anno Domini 1611. Now the translation thus was appointed to be read in churches. Appointed, however, does not simply, does not imply that the work had been authorized for this purpose as a modern English reader might assume. What this meant in 17th century English was that the work was laid out in a way that was suitable for public reading in church. Quite different, the language has changed. Many later editions dropped these words. But the fact that it was read in churches proved significant, as this led to the translation influencing the population and the English language at large. Whether it was authorized or not, eventually the Bible was widely accepted and popular far longer than the translators anticipated. Uh, they really thought, they, they, they say in their preface that they were translating for their generation, they were building on the, the work of pe people who had come before them, they fully anticipated that there would be other translations coming after them. The fact that it endured would surprise them no end. But its accuracy, and it was, it was accurate as a formal translation, and its current language ensured that it has endured. Also, as more people became literate, it was increasingly used for personal study and devotional reading, not just for public reading. And after the civil wars in England, when the Puritans were finally ousted and the monarchy was reestablished in 1660, a Bible that supported monarchy finally assumed its role as the Establishment Bible. Um, oratory. I, I, I would love to take about an hour to talk about oratory because it's had, the Bible has had such a great role there. But just to say a few things. The King James Bible has been a strong and powerful influence on public speakers. Uh, its recurrent use in the churches gave it regular exposure, but especially in North American oratory, its language continues to resonate, and today especially in the African-American community. Martin Luther King Jr., for example, not only often quoted, but he often used features like F, you know, used that ETH ending for third person in his own speech to make it sound King Jamesy. Um, but if you study the, 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 the speeches of Winston Churchill, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you'll see real resonance with the King James Version, and no one has used it more than Abraham Lincoln. If you ever had the experience of just taking the Lincoln's second inaugural address and looking at that and comparing it with your King James Bible, he could not have written his second inaugural address without the King James Bible. At least 50% of it comes straight out of the, uh, the King James. It's interesting because Lincoln was hesitant to associate himself with any organized church, but he apparently read this King James Bible extensively and quoted from it regularly. One interesting uh, footnote is the influence of the King James on Jewish translations in America. Uh, in America, the most important Jewish leader in the period before the Civil War was a man named Isaac Leeser. 
And his translation of the Bible published in 1853 was the first Jewish translation in English in the United States. Meeser reckoned, he reasoned, that if the Bible was the center of American Christianity, then it should also be the center of American Judaism. And if the Christian Bible was the King James Bible, then it also had to be the basis of the Jewish version. And his aim, therefore, was to prepare a translation that would essentially be a Judaizing of the King James Bible. For example, in 1 Samuel 3.3, the King James Bible has the young Samuel lying down, open quotes, in the temple of the Lord, close quotes. Um, but Meeser's translation has Samuel sleep in the hall of the temple. And he puts of the hall, uh, the hall of the temple in parentheses. And this insertion brought the translation into agreement with the rabbinic understanding of priestly protocol. No one would actually be sleeping in the temple of the Lord. And so Meeser had to modify that. But basically he kept King James. Acceptance of the King James Bible in America was not immediate. As I said, the, the Puritans carried three copies of the Geneva Bible on the Mayflower in 1620. By the way, a crewman by the name of John Alden, uh, he was a, a, a cooper, well, I guess they make barrels, don't they? Uh, had with, carried with him a brand new 1620 copy of the King James Bible, but he wasn't a Puritan, he wasn't part of it, he was crew. And then he got to America and he decided to stay. So actually the first King James Bible in America may well have been that one. But now, Calvinist Christianity of that era put primacy on a sovereign and vengeful God and constantly doubted the validity of worldly governments. By emphasizing the differences between those who were chosen to be saved and the lost who would surely perish, the adherents of this doctrine had little motivation for establishing strong and stable governments or founding a nation. The Geneva Bible notes and translation fueled these separatist inclinations, and the American Pilgrim Fathers carried these notions to North America. But as the country grew and spread, the northern and southern colonies lost some of their distinctiveness. Consequently, political processes developed and matured, and the need for a separatist gospel declined. In time, the need for a Bible that supported nation-building supplanted one supporting separatism. And so the Establishment Bible, the King James Version, became the Bible of America. And by the end of the 17th century, it was tre treasured as much by the British uh, of the American colonies as by those at home, and was well on its way to becoming one of America's national texts. Uh, the Geneva Bible brought over by the Puritans, was, or the Pilgrims, was never printed in America. The first English Bible printed in America was a King James Bible, printed by Robert Aitken in 1782. Aitken was a Scot who had settled in Philadelphia and was the official printer for the Journals of Congress of the U.S. Congress. But when, all Bibles still had to be printed by one of the royally authorized publishers in England. And so Aitken went to Congress and asked for permission to publish the King James Bible in this country. And Congress actually gave him permission. The only occasion of Congress authorizing the printing of a Bible. Now, as I said, this is an English Bible. The first is the first Eng uh, English Bible printed in America. An Algonquin Bible was printed in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Massachusetts in 1663, but there was no authorization, authorization required for that. Democracy. <coughs> Before the establishment of printing in Western Europe, most people did not know what the Bible actually said. The Bible was expensive, not readily available, and it was in Latin. Once it was translated and printed in the languages of Europe, reformation of the church was inevitable. People could obtain the Bible easily, 
read it with comprehension and decide for themselves what it meant. Historians point out that in England, for example, free discussion of the authority of the church and state helped bring about constitutional changes leading to a monarchy with very limited rights and powers. And in America, the climate of free and open discussion reached even greater heights and one factor that led to the, was one factor that led to the American colonial revolt. The Bible in English, specifically the King James Version, uh, allowed and even gave authority to people to think for themselves. Quite possibly, democracy as we, now know, as we know it would not have come about in Western Europe and North America without it. The Catholic uh, scholar G.K. Chesterton, who died in 1936, once said of the English that they did not really drive away the American colonists, nor were they driven. The Americans were led on by a light that went before. That light was the King James Bible. Um, from it, readers understood the equality of humankind. Each person was equally important and sacred. Each one was made in the image of God. In short, to quote another writer, Benson Bobrick, why is the King James Version of the Bible important? Because in the end, it sanctioned the right and capacity of people to think for themselves. Happy birthday, King James Bible. Thank you. I've never seen that written anywhere. And then when the Irish were required to have the Bible, they printed it and in Gaelic, but they left English for only when Satan spoke. I really have never heard that before. I, so I can neither deny nor confirm. <laughs> I, I, well, I did ask a woman who came here recently from Ireland if this were the case, and she said she was aware of it, and I asked her if she could get me such a Bible. That would be interesting. I, I, I don't know about that, but I do know that, I, as far as I know, I can, I don't, I've never seen anything written about it having to be in every home. It had to be in every church, but not every home. Did uh, Martin Luther write one of the first translations in a native tongue? He was one of the first, uh, yes. In, in, um, well, there, there, he was one of the first, especially to use the, uh, the, the, the Greek and the Hebrew as text. You had had, uh, in the Western church, uh, very little translation of the Latin as everywhere. In the Eastern church, people had actually translated into Slavonic culture, Slavonic and into, uh, Russian and so on. But that was the, they were, and they based their translation on the Greek, Greek Old Testament and New Testament. But Martin Luther, the, the church kept a very tight clamp on, on, on vernacular translations because of the, you could control the, uh, the interpretation. And when Luther was, did take it that on, uh, he was hounded for it. Um, <laughs> he, had to, he, was, he was protected by the, by the uh, uh, protector of, what was his name? Anna, I think. But he, he, was, he, he, he survived because he was protected. Uh, 
one of, one of the, one of the again, I forget. I have to go back to and look that up. But, but otherwise, he would have been probably killed as well. It was, it was rough. Would you um, mind standing up when you give your question so the audience can hear um, what we can hear up here? Alright. Uh, I have a National Geographic article about the King James Bible. It says that the Rastafarians use it. Do you know what that is? Yes, I, I can answer that. Um, by the way, I read that article. It's, it's, it's kind of, it was a little superficial, but it was fine. Um, in, if you, the, the King James Bible continues to be used extensively in many parts of the world where English was not the native language. And one of those is in the Caribbean basin, in Jamaica, for example, Trinidad and Tobago as well. People cling to the King James very, very strongly. And uh, when, we were work when I was working there, we had a great deal of difficulty in getting people to use translations in more contemporary English. Even though they didn't understand the King James, there was a strong loyalty to the King James. So the Rastafarians, when they were developing their own particular interpretation, held to the King James, got all got used that as their basis for that. So that that's the, the Rastafarians did in fact use the King James Bible extensively. Could you explain if there's any literary significance to the Bible I'm sure he was not. The translators were all scholars from Oxford, Cambridge, for the most part. Uh, almost all of them were Oxford and Cambridge people. Uh, not all, but almost all. They were churchmen. They were university professors. Uh, they did not, as I said, they really weren't interested in plays and that kind of thing. And uh, I doubt if they had any relationship whatsoever. And the, the Bible that that, that uh, Shakespeare quoted was the was the uh, was not this. He would have quoted from the Great Bible or the Geneva Bible. Yes, well, first of all, I found this a fascinating lecture and uh, full of all kinds of bits and pieces which we will carry home with us. But I'm wondering if there's some source that we could find that would put all this together in the way you have and so that we would perhaps remember it. Just so happens. There are a number of, of pretty good books out there. Uh, that cover parts of the story, uh, or some, and some are more academic than others. Um, I think Dr. Flesher referred to one this morning, used Nickel, I think, as your ma major source in the article that was in the paper, which is a, uh, he, he can give you that reference, which is a very good book. There is, um, but what, what we discovered, the reason I was asked to write the book, and I was asked to write it, uh, was because someone, there was a, re there was a need to have something that was for a general audience that brought the whole story together, as opposed to focusing on different aspects. And so I tried to draw on a lot of different sources to get the, the, the totality of the story. And that's what I've tried to cover in my book. Good. But there are a number of other, I mean, there's a some, there's some number of books that are, go much more depth than I have in certain aspects, but never for the whole thing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm struck by the, the how technology connects with the, the printing of the, of the King James Bible at, at different times, so that it, it does very well with the early printing press, 
And then in the 1820s, it's the steam press, which I wonder if that contributed to the dropping of the Apocrypha, where, where everything just speeded up. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about whether you think digital media are making a difference to the dissemination and the production of the King James Bible. Which media? Digital media. Um, so the accessibility oh. online and whether there are adjustments being made to it or different uses to it and so on well, connected with that. In, in, in North America, it's in the, the, the King James Bible is in the public domain, even though there are, as I say, five different uh, uh, streams of, of King James. So therefore, a lot of people are putting King James online, and, you, and I don't. Some of them use one form, and some use another. They don't have to. They don't have to give credit for it. They don't have to pay royalties for it. In England, you still have to have permission from the from the uh, the, the royal publishers, which is the, the, the right to the, do the King James Bible is held by Cambridge University Press. So if you want to print in England and you're not Cambridge, you have to ask Cambridge permission to do it, um, and that would include digital. Uh, but of course, you know, digital has just gone rampant. There, it's, it's, it's very interesting, of course, the printing press uh, uh, made it possible for Tyndale and for King James and other later to, to have a great dissemination of the work. The next day, great major thing that came along was CD-ROM. A lot of Bibles now are in CD-ROM. Uh, and then online. It, it, online now, there's great access. I don't think it's changing it. I think what it does is uh, people seem to go online and, and, and um, for comparison, they may want to compare four or five translations and look at them, but I don't, I don't know how much the digital is doing except making it more convenient. They're all, but all the translations are online. There are some translations that are only online, never been printed. I think the prince that was the patron of the savior of Martin Luther was Brandon. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. I had a mental lapse there. I couldn't take it. Have you ever considered that Satan wrote one half of the King James Bible of uh, 1611? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered that Paul was an advocate for Satan? And Isaiah. Uh, the uh, 14th chapter and the 13th and 14th verse, uh, uh, Lucifer said that he would be in charge of all the churches and congregations. Uh, I drove all the way to Casper to tell you people that the Bible, the King James Bible, is a false doctrine, at least half of it. Everything that Paul wrote, everything from the Acts through Jude, is not true. What's your authority for that statement? I haven't considered it, no. <laughs> this is a university. When you make a statement like that, you need to be able to back it up. What is your authority for the statement that you just made? Uh, I'm Ezekiel, Malachi 4, 5. That's amazing. I'm a prophet. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on, though, and you know, people can discuss it with you later if they would like to. It's an interesting observation. Do we have other? Okay. Yeah. Are there a variety of versions of the Tyndale Bible as well? 
they're, they're actually, because of the, it went through a couple of different revisions, but uh, there is a man named David Daniel who has done definitive work on piecing together the different editions and coming up with it. And it's readily available. You can buy it on, from, from uh, Amazon.com. Uh, and he will have gone, he has gone through extensively some of the variations he had in two or three different printings and discusses them and, 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 and has the really, very extensive notes. So if you're interested in the, what was the original quote unquote uh, Tyndale, you would get that from David Daniel. Very good. Yeah. What is your I don't, except I'm assuming it was probably a Geneva Bible. Yeah. Can we all give?